Typically in history, there's an inverse correlation between a person's impact and how forgotten they are to history. This is not the case with Isaac Leeser, who is one of the most significant and impactful Jews in all of American history. He lived during the mid-19th century, and there was virtually nothing that he did not have his fingers in in American Jewish life. Sadly, he's largely forgotten. In this episode, we take a look at the life and times of Isaac Leeser. As always, if you have any questions, please feel free to reach out and do us a favor by liking and sharing this podcast and leaving us a comment. Welcome to the Jewish History Podcast. I'm Rabbi Nachum Meth. This morning we wanted to talk about a forgotten hero, Isaac Leeser, who, well, I took a, what's that? Forgot all about him. Most people have never heard of Isaac Leeser. Uh, but just to begin, I want to read a quote um, by historian and a reform rabbi, Bertram Korn said practically every form of Jewish activity which supports American Jewish life today was established or or envisaged by this one man. And almost every kind of publication which is essential to Jewish survival was written, translated, or fostered by him. Isaac Leeser was a ubiquitous figure in American Jewish life from 1830 to 1868. Um, Just an absolutely remarkable person. An unbelievable, an absolute rock star of American Jewish history, and one of the great tragedies slash ironies, which we'll discuss towards the end of our conversation, is that he is almost completely forgotten from Jewish history, from world history, from American history. Where did I get my material from? So there is a, a nice amount written on on Leeser, but it's you gotta skim it from a bu- bunch of places. So usual places, usual suspects. Orthodox Jews in America by Jeffrey Gurok is a, is a classic, so there's going to be any Jewish, any book on American Jewish history is going to have a section on Isaac Leeser, just because he is such a significant person from, again, for that about 40-year period, uh, it's actually more like 45, but from about 1825 to 1870, a little bit shy than that, he is just the most significant Jewish figure by far. Uh, another great book, which has a nice amount of material was American Judaism by Jonathan Sarna. This is a great book. You can also have, you can get it in an audiobook as well. <clears throat> there are several essays that you can find online, which I direct you to. I believe it, it in the Jew, in the Encyclopedia Judaica. The write up on on Isaac Leeser is by like one of like Solomon Schachter, or some, someone some classic guy wrote the write up, as well as. Um, there is a, a historian and also a reform rabbi out in, I believe, in Gratz College. Uh, his name is Rabbi Lance Sussman, who uh, I read. He wrote. He had, there are several essays of his that are available. He actually wrote a book for his thesis. Uh, for his thesis, I did not read the book, but I've read. I've read most of his articles, which are available online, as well as there are several articles and publications by Rabbi Rakefet out of. Uh, Gross and YU. So there's a lot of material available for further reading, whoever wants, but enough bibliography. So let's get started. Isaac Leeser, a remarkable, remarkable person. And he comes to the United States, I want to say in 1824. And he becomes really a significant person in... uh, he lands in the United States in 1824. We'll talk about that in a moment. Who was the leading rabbi? Who are the leading figures in American Jewry in 1824 in the United States of America? I'm glad no one raised their hand because it's a trick question. The answer is there was no one. 
There were no rabbi. The first rabbi doesn't make it to the United States of America till 1840 in Abraham Rice. Which means you have almost 200 years of American Jewish history where there is virtually no Jewish leadership. There's certainly no rabbi. And there's hardly any Jewish leadership for about two centuries. And that's the America that Isaac Leeser lands at in 1824. Now, there were Jews. As we've talked about in several classes, the first Jews arrived in the United States when? September 30th, 1654. It's remarkable. We know the exact date. We know exactly when the Jewish community of North America was established. September, I want to say 30th. Here, it doesn't say, I just say September. I'm pretty sure September 30th, about two days before Rosh Hashanah of 1654, 23 Jews from Recife, Brazil, land in New Amsterdam. They start the first Jewish community. Where were they from? Recife, Brazil. Recife, Brazil. Now, these Jews, and they're going to go ahead and establish the Jewish community of North America. These were Jews on the run from the Spanish Inquisition. These were Spanish-Portuguese Jews who established the first Jewish community in 1654. Were these Jews Orthodox, Conservative, or Reform? It's a good, another trick question. There was no such thing as Orthodox, Conservative, or Reform in 1654. There was only there was traditional Judaism. There was Judaism. Were people different variants, different levels of observance? Of course. But the Reform and, orth and Conservative movements don't make it, don't really get created, as it were, till, it's hard to know exactly when you want to say the birth of Reform Judaism in America is 1824, 1883, whatever you want to say, but it's not till the 19th century does Reform actually become a thing, and when does Conservative become a thing? Well, that's also a hard question to answer. 1887, 1917, depending how do you want to, where you want to draw the line, but the Jews who arrive in North America in 1654 they're observant Jews. They believe in the Torah. They believe in the Torah, Shabbat Pen, the oral tradition of the Torah, and the Shulchan Arach, and the code of Jewish law. Now, were these particularly pious and observant Jews? And the answer is, they wanted to be, but the reality is, was they were not. For the first 200 years, really, till today, the great challenge of North American Jewry was one thing, assimilation and Americanization. As Jews came to the United States in 1654, they wanted to get ahead of things. They wanted to move on in life. And the United States, back then it wasn't even the United States, a bunch of colonies, although they were relatively speaking to the rest of the world, these were pretty hospitable places. Um, if you wanted to be a practicing Jew, it was very hard. How are you going to observe Shabbos? Very difficult. Where are you going to go ahead and find kosher meat? Where are you going to go ahead and find a Moel? Where are you going to go ahead and get a proper Jewish education? It was a very, very big challenge. And the story of North American Jewry from 1654 when the first Jews arrive on the scene until 1824 when Isaac Leeser, the protagonist of our story, arrives on the shores of the United States. For that period of time, it's a story of American Jewry desperately trying to hold on to something while all the while struggling to modernize and to get on with life and Americanize and which led to massive amounts of assimil assimilation, lack of observance and general decline of Judaism. Now, 
first Jews that arrive in, in, uh, in the United States in 1654, just to sort of set the stage so we know what we're talking about when Isaac Leeser comes, to, comes to, to America. So early on, then beginning in the, in the 18th century, so a couple of communities begin to emerge after the, that first settlement in New Amsterdam and New York. Some of the major cities, you'll get New York has uh, these Jews. They start, name the, their congregation is Shereth Israel. Shereth Israel, they start a congregation shortly after arriving. Shereth Israel is the oldest congregation, oldest congregation in the United States of America. Now you're saying, no, Rabbi, isn't that the Turo Synagogue? Right? Classic rookie mistake. The Turo Synagogue was, the Turo Synagogue is the oldest building that's still in use. But Sherith Israel was a congregation that was found almost 100 years before the Torah Synagogue. Sherith Israel still exists. Sherith Israel, it's now called the Spanish-Portuguese Synagogue, under the leadership of Rabbi Soloveitchik, a brilliant, brilliant man. It's an Orthodox synagogue, still around today in, in, uh, in New York. Um, Newport, where the Torah Synagogue was, was one of the five first communities. You have Newport, Charleston has congregation Beth Elohim, uh, Mikveh Israel in Savannah, Georgia is a significant congregation, and what we're going to talk about in a few moments, congregation Mikveh Israel in Philadelphia. So you have Philadelphia, Charleston, Savannah, uh, Newport, and New York are the major cities of Judaism during the 18th century. By the time of the late 18th century, late 1700s, you have a few other communities that begin to open up. Richmond, Virginia, Lancaster of all places, a couple small cities, Boston, Baltimore, Washington DC, woo, New Orleans, St. Louis, Cincinnati, and it slowly, a couple of small communities begin um, to, to develop you know, by the late 1700s, early 1800s, and they slowly become, start moving west. But we're not talking about maybe more, not more than a dozen, maybe two dozen communities our Jewish communities are, devout, are, are, are um, in existence in the United States. Um, but let's say by the turn of the, of the 19th century. Who were these Jews? Who were these Jews? So for the first 150, 200 years, the majority of these Jews, certainly in those communities of New York, uh, Lancaster, uh, sorry, New York, um, um, Newport, Savannah, Charleston, uh, Philadelphia, these communities were primarily, and these, all of these shoals, all the synagogues, were Spartac synagogues. These were Spanish-Portuguese synagogues. These were Jews who were on the run now almost two centuries after the, Spanish, uh, the, the expulsion from Spain. These were primarily Spanish Jews. Now, these communities kept on developing and getting more Spanish Jews, mainly from the, the Sugar Islands in the Caribbean. These were heavily... Um, Jewish islands, the islands in the Caribbean, the Sugar Islands and the various places down there, these were primarily settled by Spartac Jews. And when they wanted to, you know, make it to the United States, they would make it to the United States, right? So we've talked about, just again, we're on a tangent here, but it's interesting, right? Alexander Hamilton, right? Who's born in, I always forget, Saint something or other out in the, I forget where, out in the Caribbean, right? What? Not St. Thomas. In, 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 in Nevis, 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 that's where it is. Yeah, exactly. Thank you. So he's born out, out there. So people say, well, oh, there's rumors he was Jewish. Very, very, very doubtful. Although his mother's first husband was Jewish, probably, Levine, uh, who ran away. He was not, not a great guy. And Alexander Hamilton, who was a bastard, 
right, was not accepted in the local schools in Nevis because, of his, because he was a bastard. So where did he go to school? The local Jewish cater. Absolutely true story. Alexander Hamilton, New Hebrew. He was very proud of the fact that he can recite the Cyrus Adibros, the Ten Commandments in the original Hebrew. He, was, he, went, he learned Torah. I mean, not Torah, but he was raised in the local cheder out in the Caribbean. A, a true fact. Or fact check it. Or I could be making stuff up. You guys are right. <laughs> by the time, by the, by the turn of the 1800s, how many Jews are living in the United States? It's still, it's a very small number. You're talking about 1,000, 2,000 Jews. Um, most of these Jews are Spartic. Um, from England, from the islands. Now, most, as I mentioned, most of these Jews are Spartic. Now, beginning in the early 1800s, you begin the next sort of next phase of Jewish immigration to the United States. There are still a lot of Spart, a lot. And again, we're talking about 2,000, maybe 2,500 Jews by the time of, this, of the American Revolution. There are a few, new Jews start coming from Central Europe from Germany, Bohemia, we, we, even places from Poland, but it wasn't really Poland. It was places like Posen, which are more like Prussia, which, although were ethnically Polish or ethnically they were more Central European. Jews begin emigrating to the United States from Central, from Central, uh, from Central Europe and from Germany. By the time Isaac Leeser comes to the United States, let's say by 1824, you're talking about, and, and the numbers are really beginning to, to, to increase, you have about 15 to 20,000 Jews by, let's say, the 18, by, let's say by 1830. That's how many Jews are going to be on the scene. Now, by the time, let's say, the Civil War rolls around and the German immigration is really picked up, by the time the Civil War, let's say by 1861 and towards Isaac Leeser's death, you have probably about a quarter of a million Jews. Now, the way, if we like putting things into nice, neat little boxes of, you know, Jewish history, so we say, well, from 1654 to, let's say, 1820, all the Jews were Spanish-Portuguese. From 1820 to 1883, all the Jews that immigrated, these are all the German Jews. And then from 1883 to 1923, that's when all the Eastern European Jews emigrate. Now, that's a helpful way of looking at American history in, one, in a nutshell, and it has a lot of truth to it, but obviously it's not quite as seamless as that. Beginning in the 1820s, yes, the predominance of Jews who emigrate to the United States are German. Why are they coming to the United States? Two reasons. Number one, beginning in 1820, let's say for the next you know, six, six decades, two reasons. Number one is Jewish immigration patterns typically follow Gentile immigration patterns. And what do we know in American history? Many uh, German, German Gentiles begin immigrating to the United States. And along with them, Jews got the idea, hey, this looks like an interesting thing. Now, the, the, they would immigrate in a much greater percentage, and the, the distribution numbers were out of whack, but that's why they came. Now, secondly, a lot of, one of the major reasons why German Jews began immigrating to the United States is the failed or, the, in the early 1800s, the, the Prussian Jews were emancipated, Frederick the Great and the like, and Jews began to become, they got their citizenship, and supposedly were emancipated from the shtetl. However, there were, it, it wasn't, it was always one step forward, two steps back in terms of Jews being admitted and welcomed into general life in Central. Now, Eastern Europe, different story. Russia, they're still, 
you know, totally oppressed. And the, 1900, the, the, the 19th century was a, a, a brutal century for, for Eastern European Jews. But for Central European Jews, they thought the 1800s where Jews would be emancipated. But they weren't really welcomed as much as they thought. And it was sort of like a letdown. And many Jews decided, we're out of here. And they would move to the United States. With that backdrop, I'd like to introduce you to my good friend Isaac Leeser. Who was Isaac Leeser? So Isaac Leeser, following these immigration patterns, was born in 1806 in Prussian Westphalia, Central Europe. He's a classic Central European Jew. He follows this same model. He... His father, he becomes orphaned at a very young age. By 14, I think by the time he's 14, both of his parents are, are, are dead. By the time he's 18, he's penniless. Now, he goes ahead and he, he moves to Munster where he goes ahead. He, he's raised as an Orthodox Jew. He goes to Cheder. He goes to you know, day school. And he actually attends a yeshiva where he studies... Not all of Shas, but I believe it's very cool for those who are keeping score. I think he studied, he would say he studied Baba Kamo, Bava Babasra, and like one of the, one of the, the Masechas in, in, in Nashim. So he did, he had a basic cursory knowledge. He had studied a blot Gemara, as they say in French. He had studied a little bit of Talmud. He had a little bit of Talmudic uh, upbringing. However, he also did go to college. And we're going to see that's going to be one of the, the defining uh, description of Isaac Leeser is one thing. He's a man of synthesis. He's a man of synthesis. He was able to synthesize. That's his entire life. So here he is. He's a learned person. He goes to university. He receives a college education. But he also studies under the name of the rabbi that he studied was Rabbi Abraham Sutro. I don't know who he is, but he was, I think, a significant person who was a classic Orthodox Central European rabbinic figure who was his rabbi, his rabbi, who he studied under. However... The one interesting thing that Isaac Leeser picked up during his Jewish education was that his rabbi didn't teach and preach in German. I'm sorry, in Yiddish. But he would also preach and teach in German, which was revolutionary at the time, which already showed even his rabbi was a little bit more of a synthesizer. He was comfortable speaking in the local vernacular. That was something that was not necessarily common you know, in the 18-teens in Germany amongst the traditional rabbis. In 1824, in, in the spring, I think it's May of 1824, Isaac Leeser is, I think he's 18 years old. He's penniless. He has a rudimentary, a basic education, but he has no future. He has no hope. He's got no parents. He's got no money. He's got no family. So he decides, what's he going to do? He'll join what's this, this popular movement of immigration of Jews who are emigrating from Central Europe to the United States. He's got a mater- an uncle through his mother's side who's living in Richmond, Virginia. So he decides he'll go. And he emigrates to Richmond, Virginia. He spends the next couple of years. He's a young man, a kid, college age working as a bookkeeper for his uncle, who was a businessman of sorts. Now, as I mentioned, there were no rabbis in the United States until 1840. There are no rabbis. So he gets to Richmond, and the local shul there, the synagogue, which is called, mind me, I always forget what it's called, Richmond. I think it's called, I don't remember what it's called. You'll Google it, but it's on there. (laughs) And the local, so who ran the synagogue? What happened? So the answer is like this. 
Typically speaking, most synagogues in the United States of America since 1654 were ran by the board. You had what were called the Parnassim, the, the, the board of, of each congregation, of each synagogue, and they were the end of the, they were the be all and end all of the, of the congregation. And that kind of worked, but obviously it didn't, because you need someone to run the congregation. And the problem was, is as the decades progressed, Jews became less and less learned. So who's going to physically lead the congregation? Who's competent and qualified to run the service? So you enter into the scene, really, really beginning in the 1700s, but certainly by the turn of the, 18th, of the, of the 19th century, really the way the United States, and, and, and you find this during the American Revolution, there were no rabbis. Rather, what you had was you had the position of the chazan. What's the chazan? The cantor. You've ever heard of a chazan? You go to any synagogue, you have the chazan. The chazan is the cantor. Well, back in the 1700s, the early 1800s, the cha- nowadays, the chazan is like anyone. Who wants to be the chazan? You want to be the chazan? Who wants to be the chazan? The chazan is not, it's, anyone could be the chazan. Back then, the chazan, or the chazan, was, was somewhat of an official, it was an, a ministerial position of sorts. The chazan was actually a hired position who actually was somewhat of the figurehead of the synagogue. However, he was always appointed by the board, and the board never wanted to, make sure, wanted to make sure that the chazan was never very powerful. The chazan's job was to be a chazan, to lead the congregation, to say the prayers, and that's it. The, congr- the, the board typically didn't want the chazan to be too influential, or to be too much of a figurehead, because after all, the board wants to be in charge. And that's what the United States looks like in 1824 when, when, uh, when Isaac Leeser gets to the scene. Every congregation is led by... A, now, some of these chazans were significant people in American history. If you recall, when we talked about the American Revolution, you have Gershon Mendesatius, is a, a, it's one of the most significant Jew, the most significant Jew during the American Revolution period, probably. Right? He's a chazan. He's not a rabbi. Isaac Leeser gets to Richmond. They need a chazan. Now, Isaac Leeser was not a rabbi. And this was a point he would make for the, till the day he died. Isaac Leeser, I was very careful. I didn't say, Isaac Leeser was the most influential rabbi. Isaac Leeser was not a rabbi. And he would always defer to people who had more scholarship and more knowledge than he had. He was not a rabbi. However... In the United States in 1824, he probably was the most competent halachic authority in the entire continent of North America, which is saying something about what the state of Jewry was like. He's not a rabbi, he's not a scholar. He had studied, in, not even in yeshiva, he had studied for a couple of years. He had met, you know, he was a yeshiva guy. But he was the most learned person in North America at the time. So he becomes the chazim in Richmond, Virginia. They need... Need someone to lead the lead the congregation, so he leads the congregation. Isaac Leeser becomes the chazan. He's a young man, and he's doing a good job. But Isaac Leeser wasn't comfortable. He sees what's going around him. He sees the world um, around him. The United States, the state of Jewry in the United States, was a disaster. <coughs> Jews were unlearned. Certainly unpious, not following Jewish halacha by, in mass. And he sees the state of American Jewry. 
And Isaac Leeser made it his lifelong mission to do something about that, to make a difference, which is why, in my opinion, Isaac Leeser is one of the great heroes of American history. He's not qualified. He's not a major, you know, rabbinic figure. Rather, who is he? He was a person in the United States that would see a major problem as a young man when he gets to these shores and he sees the devastation of the Jewish community and he made it his lifelong mission to do something about it and do something he did. In just five years, by 1828, 1829, again, he's, he doesn't speak a word of English. Within five years, he's mastered English. Not just like a broken immigrant's English, but a beautiful English. And he was well-versed in English and would be prolific in his writing, as we will talk about shortly. But he's mastered English. He really becomes notable. I mean, in Richmond, he's the chazin. He's kind of running the shul in this Richmond congregation. Nothing too significant. He really becomes um, a figure, a national figure in 1828, 1829, when he writes an article in the Richmond, I don't know what the name of the local paper in Richmond was, but the local, not Jewish paper, the local paper in Richmond, London, in London at the time, um, let me get my notes. Okay, yes, it's in 1828, a letter published in the Richmond Whig, not W-I-G, W-H-I-G. Um, there was a, uh, an article which used Jewish history, uh, no, I'm sorry, there was an article published in Lo the London Quarterly, which, as, an anti-Semitic letter, you know, sailing Jews as being horrible, Christ killers, all the bad things, usual anti-Semitic canards and, and vitriol. And Isaac Leeser publishes a letter in 1828, he writes a letter to the editor type of thing that gets published in the, in the Richmond paper, defending... Judaism, using historical references. It was a very thought-out, well-written article. And it was very well-received. And he becomes somewhat of a national figure. Up to that point, there hadn't really been anyone who'd been able to write something like that. And in 1829, shortly after, you know, Leeser becomes somewhat of a, of a national figure. In 1829, we mentioned the congregation in Philadelphia, Mikveh Israel, so they had a chazin. Problem is, their chazen dies. So Mikveh Israel, they need to start looking for their own chazen in Philadelphia. Isaac Leeser wasn't particularly interested in the job. He was fine in Richmond, but he had a friend who knew him, and, and he gets offered the job, and he moves to Philadelphia, where he becomes the chazan in Mikveh Israel, where he would serve for the next 25 years with tremendous tension. As we mentioned earlier, there was often, the way the board, the Parnassim, the way the board of any synagogue operated, they wanted their chazin to come in, lead the service, sing a nice song, and get out. They didn't want the chazin, they weren't looking for the chazin to be influential. That's the job for the president of the board. We don't want the chazin doing anything. Nothing has changed in the United States. No, we have a wonderful president. We are Hashem, thank God. Our board is wonderful here, right? But, that, that, but it is, it's, it's that, right? It's, it's that typical story of the tension between the president and the board and the, the rabbi. Again, this is not a rabbi, but the chazin, right? That tension, right, that exists, right? Nothing has changed. That was the story. And Isaac Leeser would, would have that tension with his congregation in, in Mikveh, Israel, for 25 years. Eventually, he would leave. 
he quit. He left, and he would stay in Philadelphia. He would move to Temple Congregation Bethel MF in Philadelphia till his death in 1868. But that tension between the board and the rabbi, that was, uh, you know, that was a constant. So he goes to Philadelphia, Mikveh Israel. Now, Mikveh Israel is a Spartac congregation, as we mentioned. Those early congregations, those, those, the five, big five early, early uh, congregations, these were Spartac. But... The, the congregants, as we mentioned, they're now coming from Germany. Ashkenazic Jews. And they're the ones sitting in the pews now. Did that create a certain tension where you have a Spartac congregation populated by Ashkenazic Jews? So the answer is yes and no. No, in the sense that most Jews were unlearned. It, it's you're a million miles from home. You're just looking for some kind of Jewish connection. And this was Jewish connection. So it's a little bit different of a tune, different than this. I'm not so observant to begin with. Most Jews were, you know, the most congregants weren't so observant to begin with. It was good enough. However, for the Jews that wanted a little bit more, it did create a certain tension. And that would develop and by the... By the mid-1850s, you were going to see kind of the end of the influence of the Spartac groups and the Ashkenazic Central European German congregations really become the powerhouse and dominating force in, in the United States really for the next 60 years, really till 19, the early 1900s when the Eastern European wave would change. But certainly for 50, 60, 70 years, right, that Central European Jewry um, was certainly the driving force. So Isaac Leeser becomes the chazan of Mikveh Israel. It's a Spartac congregation. He's an Ashkenazic Jew, but he's fine with that. Because again, Isaac Leeser decides his life's mission is going to be to save American Jewry. And he's going to institute a series of, I'm not, I guess we'll call them innovations, things that he did over the course of the next 38 years that he implemented in the United States, as we mentioned, he will be the most ubiquitous Jewish figure in the United States of America for the next 40 years. First thing that he tried doing is talking about that tension between the president and the, and the, and the chazan. He wanted, he saw a need that we, there, there was a real need for real leadership. The chazan being this token figurehead who would go ahead, lead the, you know, just recite the, the service and get out. He saw that that wasn't going to work. He saw that Judaism, they needed an official figurehead position. He wanted to transfer, and he did, to make it that the Chazan position was more of a ministerial role. Not just a guy who could say the Kaddish. Not just a guy who could lead the service, but someone who could inspire the congregation. Someone who actually would be an official leadership position. Why did he do that? Because, and it's an interesting article, and this is an argument that Lance Sussman, again, one of the great biographers of Leeser makes, he calls it, the name of the article is pretty shocking. He calls it Isaac Leeser and the Protestantization of American Judaism. He argues that Isaac Leeser, who definitely was well aware of what was going on in the Christian world, this is the era right after, kind of in the, in the wake of the Second Great Awakening, and he sees Protestantism really taking off, and he sees in the Protestant, in, in, in local churches, in the Protestant denominations, you know, the role of the minister, the role of the reverend, the preacher, teacher, who can go and inspire, and Isaac Leeser decides he wants to transform the position of Chazan into that kind of role. 
And one of the first things that he does successfully, and everyone in this room, this is something you are all impacted by Isaac Leeser, and you have him to thank or to hate, is the innovation of the sermon. (laughs) Think about it. Where does the sermon come from? If you study Jewish history and Jewish law, Rabbi Goldman, sorry to put you on the spot. Rabbi Katani, we got a show, we got a pulpit, Rabbi. Rabbi, can you please identify in the code of Jewish law and the Shulchan Aruch, where does it talk about the rabbi's sermon in the... No, it's not, I'm sorry. It's a trick question. It doesn't say anything about a sermon in the service. It doesn't say anything about a sermon in the service. And as a, as a matter of Jewish history, the rabbi, the role of the rabbi, certainly in Europe, and even, I mean, not just in Europe, in all of Jewry, for 2,000 years, the role of the rabbi was not to sermonize and preach. Certainly not in a Shabbos morning. Right now, you, what, what does a rabbi do? He gets up, so, you know, Shabbos morning, and he, you know, this rabbi tells stupid stories of aircraft carriers for those who are at the explanatory service. That was a great story, right? Great story. That was not the role of the rabbi. The role of the rabbi was to be a halachic decisor, to answer questions, to marry people, to bury people, to divorce people. That was the role of the rabbi. Isaac Lee's... Now, at best, at best, in, in the, the rabbi would preach to inspire, to motivate twice a year. Twice a year. When would the rabbi speak publicly to the congregation to inspire? So close. Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur, close. It was Shabbos Hagadol. Shabbos Hagadol is the Shabbos, is the Saturday before Passover. Shabbos Hagadol, the rabbi would give a drasha, would give a sermon to inspire. And Shabbos Shuva is the Shabbos in between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, the rabbi would speak to the congregation. At best, the rabbi would sermonize twice a week. Isaac Leeser realized that what the, what the United States of America needed was sermons. And he was able to strong arm the congregation to allow him to sermonize and institute the sermon in Mikveh Israel Saturday mornings. The board reluctantly let him do that, but every week he had to get approval for 25 years. (laughs) It did stick. And if you want to know why in the United States of America, virtually every congregation that you go to, the rabbi gives a sermon, it is a direct result of Isaac Leeser and his, so you have him to thank or to hate for the answer. Now, now why did he want, why, was, why did he fight for that? Because he felt, correctly so, that what American Jewry needed was not another chazan to say, and to lead the congregation. The America needed inspiration. And he went ahead and, in, and, and, um, and that was one of the things that he did. He also instituted decorum in the, in the synagogue. If you've ever been, if you go to certain, if you ever go to a shtibel, you know what a shtibel is? A shtibel does not translate well into English. I don't think there's an English word for a shtibel. But if you go to Borough Park today in Brooklyn, a shtibel is like a small, is like a basement synagogue. This is what a shul looked like in the 1800s, in the 1700s. A small little shtibel. If you ever go to a small shtibel, now I'm going to apologize, Rabbi, it ain't like a reformed congregation of the class. It is ain't Temple Emmanuel, where everyone's sitting nicely in their pews with the stained glass windows, listening to the rabbi. You go to a shtibel, you're like, what is this? Right? 
a shtibel is like the decorum. It's, it's, I once read, I read an article. He says, it was a guy, he was the first time he went to a, went to a shtibel. He's like, his basic analysis was like, this wasn't like a congregation of, of like, you know, there was like 60 men there. This was not a congregation of 60 men. Rather, there were 60 congregations all happening in this one room. <laughs> it, was like, it was like, that's what a shtibel is. There's, it's, it's a little chaotic. Now, to the untrained eye or... To someone who's a Christian who's used to sitting in your pew and being sermonized to, you know, by the minister, reverend, whatever, and you sit with your sting, you go into this thing like, what is this? But the reality is, don't get me wrong, I'm not, the shtibles are, are, you have to learn to appreciate it. And if you learn to see the richness and the beauty, because Judaism is not, what's going on in the shtibel? Judaism prayer is an active process. You're not a passive spectator being prayed to by some preacher up top. And this, what was happening in the shtibbles, everyone is praying. And you just, in a certain sense, he's right. You have 60 congregations happening in one room. Because Judaism, right, people always say, Rabbi, I don't believe in organized religion. I say, I don't believe in it either. Judaism is about the individual. The role of the synagogue is we were taught that you come together and you have a minion, you get 10 people. But really, because there is a power of the group, we all know the power of the community, power of the group. But ultimately, Judaism is about the individual. And that's why if you go into a shtibel today, one of these old European-style synagogues, it is a little chaotic because it's not a spectator sport. It's everyone is an active participant, and I want to pray at my pace and your pace. I like singing this way. You like singing that way. And you go, we got to take this group to a field trip to a shtibel. That's what we need to do. <laughs> it's an incredible experience. I actually think it's a beautiful. I think I have such fond memories of growing up in, uh, you know, going to visit my grandparents that live in Bensonhurst. Anyone from Bensonhurst around here? Go to Bensonhurst on Bay Parkway out in, in Brooklyn. And they had the little shtibel, the Fultachana shtibel, you know, down there. And you go, it was the most beautiful throwback to a different world, totally a different world. And it was a beautiful thing. And that's great. And the role of the shtibel is, is, has its place. But Isaac Leeser saw that there was a need to kind of clean up the decorum. Because after all, American Jews who are Americanized and acculturated and were looking to fit in, that wasn't going to work. So he banned certain practices in the shul to unstabilize it and to turn it a little bit in to a place where a Christian guy can walk in and say, okay, I don't necessarily know the language, but the decorum is beautiful. So he did do that, and that would be one of the, one of the ideas that he, um, that he innovated. Now, so he institutes the sermon. In truth, Isaac Leeser was not a great orator. He would speak for 45 minutes. You think you have it bad here at the Cola? 45, <laughs> Rabbi Katanik, 45 minutes, right? He was, a, he was okay, but he wasn't, what, it's interesting, he wasn't known for his oratory. Rather, what ended up happening is, I'm going to jump out of order for a second. He would actually start remarkably. He had a lot of firsts. One of the first, he was, another, so his first, the sermon. He also started the first Jewish publishing company while in Philadelphia. He would write up his sermons, and it was called the Jewish Publication Company. And it's not the same one that exists today. It actually, tragically, in the, after, shortly, I think right before, before his death or after his death, it burned down. But for 25 years or so, he had a publishing company, and his sermons were published. He would go ahead and publish them and disseminate them throughout the country. Those were widely read.
and highly regarded. So his sermons, although as an orator, they were eh, eh, or I, I, it doesn't sound like that that's, that. that's how he captured his audience. As a written word, they were fantastic, and they became wildly po- popular. Now, let's put a well. You know, maybe let's jump. We'll go a little out of order in the interest of time. So he becomes a publisher. No one wanted to publish his stuff, so he becomes his own publisher. He literally developed his own publishing house. Um, he publishes volumes of sermons delivered and published by an American. Okay, it would eventually burn down. In 1837, he realized, well, you know what else we need to publish? Our congregation, Mikveh Israel, needs a sitter in English. Publishes the first sitter, an English translation, American English at least, in the United States. It's a Spartac sitter for Mikveh Israel. In 1848, he completes an English translation of the Ashkenazic prayer book. Just an absolutely prolific person. He would also begin to publish... The first American Jewish magazine newspaper, he would publish, uh, uh, it was kind of a magazine. It was called the Occident and American Jewish Advocate. Now, what does Occident mean? Not accident, Occident with an O. Anyone? Occident as opposed to Orient. Orient is Eastern, Occident means Western. Now, why does he put that? That's deliberate. One of the main, as I mentioned, Isaac Leeser is about synthesis. He wants to keep old school Jewish values and traditions and halacha and Judaism, but he wants to synthesize it with American culture to make it digestible and meaningful to, to the American Jew. And he doesn't hide that. That's even the name of his, of his, uh, of his, um, of his newspaper. It had very wide uh, subscription. We actually have, you can find the subscription rolls and you can see how many people he would send it out to. And it was very, very well received. And it's like funny, you would think, okay, like some guy who's not even a rabbi in the 18 whatever is publishing, like it's actually very good stuff. It was very, very high quality material. He, um, he used the newspaper to push his own agendas, to fight anti-Semitism. He used it, interestingly, he used it, people, congregations, let's say you're a congregation, a new congregation in Cincinnati, and you needed a chazan. How do you find out? How did you find a chazan in the 1840s? You went to Isaac Leeser and you put out ads in, in, his, in his paper. And you will find, in, the, in the, I think it's on the bottom of this, in the footnotes in the back, you have these, uh, i got to read it just to share it, just to get the flavor. Look at, look at what some of these look like. It's, it's absolutely fascinating. I'm just going to, just to, so you get here, they, in the footnotes of this article, they have some of the, these are in the classifieds. Hazan wanted. The congregation B'nai Israel of Augusta, Georgia, is desirous of engaging the services of a gentleman competent to officiate as Hazan and preacher at a fixed salary of $1,500 per annum. An additional income may be expected by teaching a Hebrew school. Applicants stating qualifications should address either Louis Levy, president, or William Jacob, secretary. It's like, it's, it's so quaint. It's like so cute. And he was very influential because he was like a matchmaker. So he publishes, so he institutes the sermon. He, institutes, he has this publishing company. He has a magazine. He then starts, actually started, he realized what is the most vital thing for a Jewish, for Jewish community to survive? Everyone needs to have, know the answer. The most important thing for a Jewish community to survive is education. Without kids' education, cities fall apart. 
It'll work while you're, but what about the next generation? That we are not educating our kids. I'm going to have we need the schools. Jewish schools need your money, your pocketbooks. They need our love, our resources. And if we don't have it, Jewish communities do not survive generationally. That is the story of American history. That is absolutely the story of American history. Isaac Leeser decides he's going to put together a Sunday school program. He, has, he gets involved in, in children's education. He actually opens up. Um, one of the, fir- the first Jewish day school, and then the fir- he, that doesn't work, but so he decides to turn it into a Sunday school. He w- opens it up together with a very significant, significant person we're not going to talk about, Rebecca Gratz. They together start the first Sunday school in Philadelphia. Gratz College is named after her, I believe. He puts together the first Hebrew primer for children. Up to that point, kids wanted to get educated. What did you, how did kids, what books did you use to educate kids about Judaism in the United States? Christian books. You would use the Christian Bible stories and hopefully the Hebrew school teacher who was probably not very educated tried to edit out. No, we're going to skip this page, little kids. You know, children, this story about Jesus, we're just not going to talk about that one. (laughs) And it was obviously this is not how it should be. So Isaac Leeser publishes, using his publishing company, the first children's um, education manual. He starts the first Hebrew school. Yeah, yeah, and we'll get to that in one second. Hold that thought for one, one moment. Um, one of his great um, attempts that actually did not pan out is he actually starts the first rabbinic school in the United States of America. Now, if you ask, what was the first rabbinic college in the United States of America? So most people will tell you it was HUC, Hebrew Union College. That's incorrect. Hebrew Union College was, was the second. The first was the Maimonides College, or whatever it was called. Let's get the exact name. It was called Maimonides College from 1867 to 1873. Isaac Leeser realized what America needs is it needs American rabbis. And in the United States, he put together, now this is already in the 18, as I mentioned, 1850s. So he had, he puts together a yeshiva. Now, who taught in this yeshiva? It's actually remarkable. Some of the rabbis in Philadelphia who would end up being more affiliated with the, you know, I guess the precursors to reform. So people like Dr. Marcus Jastrow, who led a non-Orthodox congregation, but he himself was, was definitely an Orthodox rabbi, but again, a complicated figure. So he, they had this, and it's just a remarkable people who taught in this thing, but it didn't work, it didn't last. But he had that vision to realize, you know, that what America needed was a yeshiva. And he, and he attempted to, open, to, to start one. Probably his biggest at the time, and, and one of his most significant contributions to American Jewish life, was his translation of the Bible. Until that point, if you were a Jew, an American Jew, living in the United States in the 1800s, you probably didn't know much Hebrew. If you could read it, you certainly didn't understand it. So if you wanted to go ahead and read the Chumash, you wanted to just read the, the, most, the most fundamental book in, Jewish, in, in, in Judaism, what did you do? So the answer is, and every one of you should, get yourself a copy of the Art Scroll Stone Chumash. Right? Everyone know the Art Scroll Stone Chumash? I'm being facetious here for a second. The Art Scroll Stone Chumash wouldn't be published until the 1980s. Every Jew, I don't care your background. I'm conservative, reform, orthodox, I'm affiliated, I'm an atheist, I'm a Chabad. I don't care. Every Jew, every Jew today in the United States of America, regardless of your background, observance, you're an atheist. I'm an atheist too. You have got to have read the most fundamental book of Jewish 
you know, the Jewish scripture. Disagree with it. I don't believe in it. Fine. But if you haven't read the Chumash, the five books of Moses, at least once, if you don't have a working knowledge of the Chumash, every Jew needs to have a working knowledge of the most fundamental work in Jewish, you know, Jewish writing. That's today. So everyone, go get yourself a stone chumash. The edition, the art scroll edition of the stone chumash. Great. Published in 1980. Get it on Amazon. You can't find it on Amazon. We'll sell it here. If you can't afford it, I'll pay for it. I will buy you a copy. But back in the 1800s, what did you do? Art scroll wasn't around. Amazon wasn't around. So what did you do? You know what the answer was? You read the King James edition. Jews read the King James Bible. Isaac Leeser would write, Isaac Lees is beautiful. He would write. Leeser viewed his Bible as the Jewish successor to the King James Version. This is what he wrote. It would be a, a species of mental slavery to, to rely forever upon the arbitrary decree of a deceased king of England who certainly was no prophet for the corrupt understanding of Scripture. How's that for a review of the King James, Right? <laughs> And he, wrote, he put together a, a translation of the Jewish Bible, the Chumash. And then the Leeser, and it became known as the Leeser Bible. Now, growing up, I'm going to guess all of you, when if you went to synagogue and you wanted to read a copy of the Bible, what did you use? I know the answer. What, what, co- what translation did you use? The Hertz. Ever remember the Hertz Chumash? Rabbi Katania, Grandma Zara, you remember the Hertz Chumash? Right? The Hertz Chumash was by Rabbi, Rabbi Hertz, that blue volume. It was ubiquitous, right? Rabbi Goldman, remember that old Hertz? That was used, by the way, by conservative reform and orthodox until, the reform, until a little bit later, conservative would have their own translation. But it was used by all denominations, the Hertz coming. Hertz was actually, because it went to JTS. The Hertz Chumash, Hertz doesn't translate the Chumash until the 1920s, I believe. The Leeser Bible was in use, was the first translation of the, of the Chumash, of the, of the Jewish scripture, for 70 years. You can buy on Amazon, I just Googled it, it's not that expensive to get an old copy of the Leeser Chumash. It was known as the Leeser Bible. That for 70 years, Claudia Yisrael, the Jewish people, and they wanted to study the Chumash. What did they use? The Leeser Bible. It was ubiquitous, it was everywhere. It then got replaced by the Hertz Chumash, which was then probably the most prominent Chumash, let's say from the 1920s till 1980. I remember using that. I remember my congregation had the Hertz Chumash, right? The blue with the little commentaries and the, right? And I'll never forget reading the introduction to the, you read the, Ert, the Hertz Chumash, right? The translation was a little bit like Shakespeare. Remember, art thou going to thy goeth? And, and I'll remember, like, you're like, Ugh, I don't know what it's talking about as a kid. And I remember, like, in the introduction to the Hertz Chumash, he's so proud, writing how, like, oh, our vernacular that we use, it's accessible, we use contemporary language. Like, what did this guy speak? How did he talk at home? Like, honey, art thou please patheth the eggs? You know, <laughs> these people spoke. But it wasn't, wouldn't be until the art scroll came, comes along in the 1980s, in the 1980s, till the Hertz Chumash. So the Leeser Chumash was a, a, a widely popularized a widely popularized book. Now, Isaac Leeser, he called, interesting, he used his, he, under, he, he believed in the role of women. He recognized um, the fee, this is from, he had published this in, in the Occident. The females too belong to Israel and they must, and they also must be taught that they may be understood and observe the law. There is so much given to women, especially the women of Israel, that we may freely say with a great writer of modern 
days, whose name we do not remember, that we, okay, just keep, he goes on and on. He will, and he actually would publish, remember, anyone ever remember the Tachinas? You ever know what a, the Tachina, these, these prayers that women used to recite? He published the, one of the early Tachinas for women. He understood and recognized the role of women. Now, Isaac Leeser was a believer in Torah, in the beauty and centrality of Torah. He, however, he was willing to play ball with anybody who would help promote Judaism and Torah to what he saw as the sinking ship of American Judaism. One of the most complicated figures who would emerge in prominence really after the death of Isaac Leeser would be kind of the, the I guess, the, the founder of the, of the, I guess what you call, without getting too much history, of, of Reform Judaism in the United States, was Isaac Mayer Wise, if you recall, from other classes. Isaac Leeser actually tried working together with Isaac Mayer Wise in trying to go ahead and figure out a way to work together. You know, Isaac Mayer Wise would end up going off the reservation in terms of his innovations, what he would end up doing. But Isaac Leeser was not a fundamentalist. He was willing to play ball with anyone. Isaac Mayer Wise wanted to put together a sitter called Minag America, which was actually the first performed prayer book for many, many, many decades, was Minag America. Isaac, Mayer, Isaac Leeser actually worked together with Isaac Mayer Wise. They would meet about trying to work together in early stages of reform. Isaac Leeser wanted to be influential to try to see if takes maybe if Isaac Mayer Wise and some of his ideas, maybe they're somewhat reasonable and maybe they can help make jewelry a little bit more accessible to Jews. Now, eventually it wouldn't work. And you realize that Isaac Mayer Wise was off the deep end. But he was not a fundamentalist. He was willing to work with anyone. The amount of, as you can, you know, the hours late, so we'll just kind of to conclude. His influence cannot be understated. Just an absolutely remarkable, prolific figure. All these accomplishments in books and publications. He was the leading American, uh, American Jewish figure for 40 years. It's an interesting thing. The Talmud tells us, the Mishnah tells us, Lo alecha hamalacha ligmar v'iata ben korin v'ibata mimenu. It's not your job to finish the job. It's not on you to finish God's work. God doesn't expect you or me going to solve all the problems. That's not our expectation. Our expectation shouldn't be, well, look at all the crises and tragedies and look at America today. I need to solve the problems. It's not your job to solve everything. However, person shouldn't say, well, look, if God doesn't have expectations of me to solve all the problems, let God figure it out. I'm going to go ahead and watch the NHL playoffs. It's not my problem. I'll go watch hockey. You are not absolved from not trying. That is the story of Isaac Leeser. Isaac Leeser sees American Judaism sinking. He says, look, I got to do something about it. From his sermons, the role of the chazin, starting a new, you know, the idea of a yeshiva, although it failed, it paved the way for the idea for others to start yeshivas, to Americanize and make Torah accessible to the American English reader, to Americanize and adapt Torah, not to, God forbid, Torah doesn't need any changes, but to make it more accessible for, for American Jews. Just an absolutely remarkable person. Yata ben Choren li batal 
What's interesting is, is I mean, in a certain way, the tra- some people might argue Isaac Leeser is somewhat of a tragic figure for several reasons. He never married, never has any kids, no descendants. There's no one who's a descendant of Isaac Leeser today. He's interesting in the early 1900s, in the birth of the conservative movement, some of the early conservative Jews who are looking, and the leaders of the conservative movement, who are looking at the problem that conservative, this is an argument that Rabbi Rakefet makes, an interesting thing to consider, is that the early conservative, even in the mid-1900s, early conservative thinkers were trying to think like, well, it's kind of awkward to think that like our movement just kind of came to, you know, got born, you know, out of nowhere. So they looked for antecedents. And they like to say, well, look, Isaac Leeser, he fought against reform. He was very firm about his belief in Judaism and his role in centrality of Torah, yet he was an accommodator. So many conservative thinkers have tried to say Isaac Leeser is the prototypical, he is the, the forerunner of conservative Judaism. And that's sad because Isaac Leeser would have, been, would have said, heck no. I'm not a conservative Jew. You would absolutely have not believed in, in, in conservative Jewry as a movement. He would not have appreciated that. Orthodox Judaism has largely forgotten Isaac Leeser. It's like a tragedy of sorts. He's like totally forgotten. He's been hijacked by certain other groups. Most of his works have been forgotten. Anyone ever pick up a, a, a Leeser Bible? Never heard of it. None of American Jewry today would look the same without him. If you delete him from American history, your world today looks vastly different. You know, where would Hertz's Chumash have come from? What would have happened? There would have been no, even, by the way, Reform, Conservative, Orthodox, everyone. HUC never would have gotten off the ground. JTS never would have gotten off the ground. How would Hertz have even had the opportunity to publish? Who would have been reading Hertz's Chumash? No one would even, Jews wouldn't even, would, 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 I mean, how many Jews would have been interested in their Judaism? And I think the answer is, lo alecha melacha ligmar. Our job is not results. God doesn't judge us by our accomplishments. How many people, you know, did you influence? How many did you save American Jewry? Lo alecha melacha ligmar. It's not your job to solve the problems. You have to try your darndest. God doesn't count, doesn't look or judge each and every one of us by the results that we put forth. God judges us, not by the fact, is this person remembered as a historical figure? Do people celebrate, you know, do they celebrate your accomplishments a century and a half later? That's not how God judges you. God judges us based on the effort, based on the passion, based on the dedication that we have. I think Isaac Leeser is up for a little bit of a revision. I believe he is one of the great, great heroes of 19th century Jewry, United States or otherwise. He wasn't a rabbi. He wasn't a scholar. But he was a person who cared deeply and profoundly about American Judaism and about world Judaism for that matter. And he was someone who's willing to dedicate his life for a cause, for a noble cause. And I think that should be an inspiration for each and every one of us. Thank you for listening to this edition of the Jewish History Podcast. As always, we'd really appreciate if you like and share this podcast, or even better, leave a comment. For more information, please visit us at www.lasvegascola.org.